Well, we are continuing our summer series in the Psalms this week. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at the issue of why God seems to be absent even when we are faithful to him. If you didn't listen to that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Now, this week we're, we're addressing the question of how can we have a relationship with God when we keep messing up? How can we keep having a relationship with God when we keep messing up? You see, guilt is a problem that we all deal with. Every major religion, every philosophy of life, in one way or another, has to deal with the problem of universal human guilt. Otherwise, uh, religions or philosophies of any kind are not really helpful to us as humans. We need to address our guilt. Now, by guilt, I don't just mean that we make mistakes here or there, but we have this realization that we're not living in the way that we should be living a deep and profound sense that somehow we're not doing it right. At one time or another, I think it's common to look in the mirror and ask the question, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? And I think that question arises from this knowledge that the good that we say we wanna do, we don't do. And the bad things we say we wanna avoid, we end up doing. Even when we do good, or avoid evil, when we look in our hearts, we realize that our attitudes are not right. We have this ongoing awareness that somehow we are not living up to standards. Now, guilt is not a friendly resident in our hearts. It makes us feel inadequate, unlovable, and defective. It shakes us at the very center of our being. So naturally, we wanna prevent guilt from getting too close to us. And we have mastered ways of doing that, of pushing guilt away. Uh, We can deny we've done something wrong. It wasn't me, I didn't do that. We can minimize, it's not that bad. We can cover it up. No one will notice if I, we can blame others. It's really their fault that this happened. And interestingly, Uh, we can use guilt like a club to beat it out of ourselves, right? We even have this saying, we will guilt ourselves to death. But no matter how far we keep trying to push guilt away, it is never really far from us. So our problem is not only that we don't live up to the standards we believe we should be living up to, but we are also well aware we aren't living up to them. According to the scriptures, we were created to live according to God's good and perfect law, yet we can't. Because by nature, what we have done is push away the gift of God's grace. And now, we're on the opposite side of God's law. We moved from a state of grace to a state of guilt. Now, how do we know that we are in a state of guilt? Well, Jesus teaches us all we have to do is open up the human heart. And this is what we find in there. Jesus says in Mark 7, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, 
pride, foolishness, all these things come from within. Well, if all those things come from within, then what we most need to deal with our guilt before God is a transformation of the heart. And what this psalm will specifically show us is how the gift of confession moves us from the state of guilt into the experience of God's grace. You see, managing our guilt or trying to avoid guilt are all strategies that still make guilt the center of our lives. Whether we're reacting to it, trying to reduce it, or trying to run away from it, we're trying, we live from guilt, as we live from guilt in the center of our lives. But confession is God's gift that makes Christ the center from which we live. There is a move there when we confess our sins. So I want to look at the gift of confession found in Psalm 32. And I want to say that this gift of confession takes the form of a ladder, a ladder of confession. And there are four rungs I want to take a look at from this particular psalm. But you know, before you get on a ladder, you have to know two things. Number one, can it support me? Number two, where does it actually lead? And what we have here in verses one and two is David's unequivocal answer to yes to both those questions. You see, we learn first that confession is safe with God. Uh, look at the very first word there in Psalm 32. It says, blessed. Now, if you remember in Psalm one, this was the very first word of the Psalter. It was the word that started this journey through the book of Psalms, and in Psalm one, we learn that there are two ways to live. There's the way of turning away from God, and there's the blessed life of walking with God. And that path of walking with God is what leads to happiness, not just now, but eternal, satisfying happiness. Now what Psalm 32 shows us is the same God that put us on the right path that leads to happiness is the same God who puts us back on the path when we get tripped up or wander off the path. God forgives our transgressions. You see, the blessed life with God isn't for perfect people. It's for forgiven people. And that is a world of difference and great news to us who keep wandering off the path. Now, someone I met this past week at a local business said to me that, you know, when I was growing up, my father was the nicest guy. He was so generous with everyone who came to him. He always uh, gave money to kids as they came around the neighborhood in Italy and, and um, if they needed things. He was always the most generous, kind guy until you crossed him. Then he went like this to you. Some of you know what that means. You're from New Jersey. You know what this means, right? But God is just the opposite. You see, even when we turn away from God, God desires to bring us back to himself, not push us away. You know, some of the, some, one of the reasons that we find it so hard to find confession safe is because in your own experiences, you have had an experience where you have confessed your sin to another person, okay, and they didn't respond in the way that you had hoped. Uh, maybe 
not even intentionally, they looked at you funny, or they judged you, or they treated you differently, or they didn't know what to say. This is a constant problem when we try to open up to each other in our human relationships. If I had to summarize my entire first semester of graduate level counseling, it would simply be this. How not to say something dumb when people tell you their problems. That's what we spent the entire semester because it's, because it's too pervasive and you know this from experience. And so that leads us to think that if I, it, confessing to God must be something like that too. But that's not the case. David here assures us that when we confess our gods, when we confess to God, he knows just what we need to deal with our sin. He knows the word to sustain the weary. You know, you may have disgraced a, a family name or not lived up to a particular reputation, but here the psalm shows us God covers up the shame of our offense. We may be very remorseful and sad about a bad act we did in the past that still haunts us, but God tears up the record of it. Others may count our sins against us, but God does not do that. With God, it is safe to confess our sins. The ladder of confession starts with the belief that confession is safe, that it actually is not a battered life that leads us to confess, but the blessed life with God. That's the first rung of the ladder there. But there's something really significant I want to consider before we move on. Just think about this. Um, at their best, when we tell other people our offenses or our wrongs, they can offer a compassionate response, uh, they can uplift us, and that can be really good and really timely to us. But you know, I'm willing to bet that you would give back all the compassion that others might give you about your sin if only the person that you offended looked you in the eye and said, I forgive you. I no longer hold it against you. You are freed from this. That's what we desperately long for. What we need to realize is that every sin against another person is first and foremost a sin against God who made that person. Our sins strike God first before anybody else. Uh, Sometimes we feel so guilty about our sin Right, that God is the last person we want to go to. But we must remember that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is always the first to forgive us. This is one of the ways that guilt works against us. Rather than taking the first steps of confession, uh, we believe that God will reject us. It's not, it's not safe to confess our, our sins to him. But thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are able to come to God whenever we have need. His grace is greater than our sin. So if we sin, and we're sort of contemplating whether or not to go to God with our sin, I want you to consider this, that confession of sin does no harm to the grace of God. Confession of sin does no harm to God's grace or reputation as God. In fact, confession of sin glorifies God. He delights to hear our confession because it puts on display his loving mercy through Jesus Christ that never ends. You see, some of you 
are trapped in a pattern of repeated sin. And maybe you've been working on this particular issue for quite some time. Maybe it even feels like throughout your entire life. And what keeps you away is this sense that God is not safe to confess to. But don't let that get in the way. Don't let guilt get in the way from receiving God's grace. So that's the first wrong. Confession is safe. Second, we learn that confession is honest. That's what we see in verses two through five. Notice how verse two ends. Blessed is the man and whose spirit there is no deceit. David learns he needs to be open and honest about his sin. Why? Verse three, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, all my, through my groaning all day. You see, guilt gets stronger in silence. When it grows within us, it can alter us physically. It can make us feel sick to our stomach. And here is where our sinful selves get in the way of the healing that we most need. Because the only medicine for guilt is honest confession before God and to those we wronged. But we tell ourselves that the medicine is worse than than the disease. We tell ourselves the medicine of confession is worse than the disease. You see, we think disobedience to God is bad, but admitting it is just gonna make me feel worse. We don't run for the cure, we hide from the healing instead. When my oldest daughter got sick for the very first time, I remember the epic battle in the bathroom trying to help her to take the medicine she needed. How could I convince her that the very thing she was pushing away was the very thing she needed to be healed? She wanted no part of it. She wanted no part of the medicine that would make her well. So what does a loving parent do? Well, when I couldn't reason with her anymore, I wrapped my arms around her tightly so mom can give the medicine. And look at what God does in verse four. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. You see, God sometimes has to use his hand and put it on the place where we are wounded so that we can be convicted and confess our sins to him so that we might get to a place of healing. Why are we so resistant to making an honest confession before God? What is it that makes it so hard for us to receive this medicine? It's because confession calls us to give our entire selves up to God and to say this, guilty. Guilty. When someone's in the court of law, they don't say, yes, these persons, uh, this person's words uh, were guilty or their actions are guilty. No, it's they are guilty. We don't like to make an honest confession because it means that we ourselves, not just what we say, not just what we think, not just what we do, we deserve God's judgment for our sin. And this is where we get stuck on the ladder. 
But God's grace in Jesus is aimed at changing our hearts, changing our very selves. He wants to take our hearts of stone and to give us a heart of flesh, to crucify the sinful self that resides inside of us. The problem is we want to protect the sinful self that Jesus Christ died on the cross to rid of. That's the dilemma for us. Now we want to hold on to this sinful self. I want to linger here for just a minute because this is important to see. We hold on to the sinful self because the sinful self actually works very powerfully in our world. And it actually works well for us. There are too many examples to name, but here are some, and I think that you can probably think of some on your own. Let's start here. At school, if you're in maybe middle school or high school, uh, if there is a bully who wants to take control, it's the sinful self that allows the bully uh, to be on top. It's the sinful self in a school setting that allows bystanders to the bully not to speak up, not to say anything, because it's just easier not to rock the boat. At work, the sinful self tears other people down, uh, discounts the contribution of others, makes much of our own contribution. In the boardroom, it's the sinful self that controls others and makes no room for disagreement with us. In conversation, it's the attitude that other people who are not like us are bad people or deeply wrong. In families, it's the self that controls others or blames the spouse for all the problems. You see, the sinful self works very, very well for us. But this is the self that must go. This is the self that must be crucified. If we want the grace of God, this cannot be. Now, as we read earlier in Romans, trust in Christ's death is what makes us right with God. His death on our behalf truly pardons our sin. And his death also breaks the power of sin over our lives. Once and for all, our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. But the presence of sin still remains in us. We are not yet what we will one day be when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way in which God moves us from the state of guilt to grace is when we make confession in our lives, ongoing confession about our sins. Now when there are specific problems in our relationships, they need to be addressed before the relationship can be strong again and the same is true in our relationship with God. We need to address those things. Look at what David says in verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. You see, David specifically names the sins he commits before God. Sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by trying to rename our sins, right, to make them sound less severe than they are. I didn't fully represent the truth versus I lied. But what that actually does is that it makes it so that the medicine doesn't get all the way down. Right? We, we're pulling away from the medicine before it has its full effect. That's what we need to do is to be honest. Martin Luther said that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, 
he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life, not just one time when we're converted to Christ, but our entire lives is one of repentance. So what does honest confession look like in everyday life? Well, there are many ways to do this, but let me just offer one for you to consider. Before you close your eyes at night, it's a good opportunity as you're in bed to give thanks to God for the gifts you received that day. But it's also a great opportunity to review your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. Did they show the love of God to others today? Did they show the love uh, did they show love to my neighbor? And what'll happen is that inevitably some things will come to mind in which you say, you know, I shouldn't have had that thought about that person. Or maybe I shouldn't have said that word in that way. Or I really shouldn't have done that. It's an opportunity to confess our sins specifically to God and to ask for his forgiveness and for the grace to do better the next day. Something else to consider, when you look at uh, characters in the Bible like uh, Daniel and others, when they are confessing their sins, they are on their knees when they do it. And I want to say that um, we can't underestimate the importance of our body when we worship God. What we do with our body matters, and getting on our knees to confess our sins is one practical way to acknowledge our need for God's grace, but also Christ's lordship over our lives. So, so far we've seen that confession is safe and that it, that it is to be honest, but the question is, how does confession actually change us? That's what we're going to see in the last two rungs. You see, we see at the end of verses 5 through 7 that confession restores, and then in verses 8 through 11 that confession instructs us. It teaches us how to behave differently. Let's look first at uh, the third rung that confession restores. When David confesses sin, he makes the realization that God forgives him. Uh, Instead of using defenses to protect his image, instead of trying to defend his guilty self, he gives it up, and God gives him something in return that's far better than what David's ego can defend. David's confession puts him on solid ground where the sea of troubles cannot reach him. You see, when we get defensive about our sins, when we think we are protecting our strong, sinful selves, we are actually getting damaged. And in reality, our sinful self that we think is so strong is actually so weak. Why else do we have to keep defending it? Why else do we have to keep making excuses for it? But on the other hand, the new self that God gives us is one that is restored. He puts us on a high rock where we can be on solid ground. Instead of holding on to our sins, we are secure in the grip of God's grace. Now back in college, uh, I had a chance to meet an older student in the cafeteria, and uh, when I met Tom, Tom was um, probably about, oh, I know, maybe a little bit taller than me, and 
Um, he wore his jeans very, very high. Uh, he wore a flannel shirt that was always tucked in, and he wore high-top sneakers. His hair was always carefully parted uh, down the middle. Uh, Tom was a very straight-laced looking fellow, and when I met him, I know this is hard for some of you to believe, um, I wasn't wearing a business suit. I wasn't wearing a suit jacket. Um, I actually, at that time, um, I grew out my hair for about two years, had a really big afro, I wore cargo pants, and I wore a beat-up hoodie most of the day. My mom is still shocked about how I was looking in college, but that's beside the point. So when I met Tom, I discovered that uh, we had a lot in common. We had interests in the Bible and in theology, and we spent a long time talking in the cafeteria. But at one moment in the conversation, uh, Tom said, there's something I need to tell you. I said, okay, well, what is it? He kept his eyes down. He said, I already asked for God's forgiveness. Now I want to ask for yours. When I first saw you, how you looked and how you dressed, I didn't think you knew anything about the Bible or about theology. I'm so sorry that I judged you. Would you please forgive me? Now, there was nothing that Tom had said in the exchange that would indicate that he was judging me. We were getting along just fine. But when he said that, I was in shock. And not because I was offended, but because he can confess the private judgments in his mind out in the open like that. He didn't just push it away from his conscience. He didn't deny that he was judging. He didn't rationalize it. He didn't say, you know, when we're good buddies down the line, I can tell him I had this crazy thought. No, he was open and honest about his confession. And after that incident, we became really close friends. How was he able to do that? It's because he believed the teaching of verse six. You see, the time to confess our sin is when it's freshest, not when it's farthest. Because the further down the line we get from confessing our sins, the harder it is to confess and the harder it is to get rid of. And what really stayed with me from that experience with Tom all those years ago was that he believed that the forgiveness of God is more restorative than the sinful self he could protect. God's restoration through forgiveness was better than self-preservation for him. Didn't he know what such an admission could cost him socially if that got out? That was not his concern. He believed in the goodness of God's forgiveness through confession. Now lastly, confession teaches us, it instructs us. That's the last thing we see here in verses eight through 11. It, it doesn't just wipe our slate clean, it actually shows us how we don't sin again. We aren't doomed to keep learning the same lessons again and again. But the psalmist tells us that we must not be stubborn like a horse or a mule. We must be teachable. We must be open to God's leading uh, from destructive, destructive paths. I think one of the reasons that uh, we have an issue with confession is because in some ways we think it's like a carousel. 
right? Confession and forgiveness is we try, we fail, we confess and forgive, and we try, we fail, we confess and forgive, and over and over and over and over again. But not only does confession open us up to God's forgiveness, it teaches us how to live differently. You know that when you confess something, right, and you have a posture of confession, you are quite teachable in the moment. We're vulnerable, we're open. And that's the opportunity where God's word, where prayer, where instruction from other believers can be particularly helpful. Listen to James's counsel on this in his letter. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, we need each other to learn how not to get sick with the same sins again. Hiding our sins only makes it worse. And it's not that we fix our fellow believers or that the church fixes us. It's that when we confess our sins to each other, we go to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the one that heals us. He alone is the one who provides the medicine in his own time and in his own way. What he gives, each of us needs. None of us are beyond the healing power of Jesus Christ and none of us get beyond the need for it. You see, sometimes we can get tired of hearing about other people's struggles, right? Again and again, we keep hearing about the same struggles. Well, we must keep in mind that we must not take God's patience for us for granted. We must remember that none of us are worthy to hear the confession of another person. We are all in need of the same medicine. You know, it's kind of amazing to think that when Christ envisioned a church like Stonehill and the people that would be in Stonehill Church, that he imagined that these are the folks, each other, all of us together, are the medicine that we are to be, uh, are the medicine to be used to bring restoration in each other's lives. We are instruments of healing for each other. And that's Christ's design for the church. But that will take time. And that takes increased vulnerability. And may God give us the grace to be that kind of congregation. Well, we've seen that confession is safe, it's honest, it restores, and it instructs. But there's only one question left to answer. And that is, does the ladder of confession go down or up? Does the ladder of confession go down or up? And the answer is yes. The latter brings us down and humbles us. But when we take it, we discover that we have descended into the joy of heaven. Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You see, the psalmist in the beginning is quite lonely in the desert, wasting away, and at the end of the psalm, he's in the company of God's people, and he is strengthened. You see, the way that we are able to make that pilgrimage is through the confession of our sin. Through it, we move from a state of guilt to the state of grace. And may God give each of us the grace to climb the ladder of confession. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of confession. 
Lord, we so often uh, neglect or abuse the means you give us to get better. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would take this good medicine and that you would begin to work in our hearts deep and abide in healing. We ask that we'd use our congregation to be instruments of this healing for each other. Thank you that your love never fails us nor lets us go. And it's in your strong name that we pray. Amen.